Hairbring Comedy Presents! Over the past two decades, I have worked with artists of varying genres. Music, comedy, theater, dance, and more. It has been my observation that while each has its own systems and specificities, they are all relative. Art itself is relative to the observer. As the audience, our appreciation is influenced by our individual perspectives. For artists themselves, motivations and measures of success are just as conditional. In this series, I will be speaking with working class entertainers and artists. We will highlight the unique aspects of their crafts while, hopefully, proving my theory that it is all pretty much the same at their roots. My name is Isaac Landford, and this is The Art of Relativity. Cool. We'll jump into it. I'm sitting in the uh, beautiful Studio City apartment of Chad Damiani. Is it Damiani? Am I pronouncing it correctly? Uh, that's what my brother says it. I say Damiani because I think a lot of my family doesn't say it right because that sounds like almost like damn, like hot damn. Oh, and that's too much. And uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if they want to be associated. In my in my business, it's good. Clown business. It's, <laughs> it's, I'm already starting on the right foot. See, I my instinct is Damiani. Yeah. But I heard you introduced on stage as Damiani, and I'm uh, like, well, I just assume I'm the one mispronouncing it. I was uh, name dropped on an improv podcast the other day, and a friend of mine, uh, Brian O'Connell, who's a really good improviser, he uh, just kind of tagged me on Facebook. He's like, you got name dropped. So I was like, oh, I'll listen. By the way, if you want me to listen to your podcast, name drop me. I'll listen to <laughs> two hours for like the most meager name drop. I'm so sad. And uh, essentially, it's a nice bunch of guys, um, and uh, but they just sat and butchered my name for 10 minutes. They were like, is it Damanana? I was like, this is not what I That's imagined. a weird rhythm of the pronunciation right <laughs> yeah. there. Oh, yeah. Banana. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely, that happens a lot where like the end just becomes like a series of like vowel consonant repetitions, like Dananani. It's like, oh, I don't know how that, that you got there, but. Uh, is it Italian or what is it? It is. I am a hundred percent Italian. Okay. Uh, oh no, I found out my dad got um my dad's doing all that stuff where, you know, like the twenty three and me and stuff, and I guess we're twenty five percent German. Oh, I mean, it's almost like impossible. You have countries so close together. Yeah, <laughs> maybe a little of that. But yeah, like it's a. Uh, I'm from Central Italy, and uh, I mean, I've I am uh, second generation. Okay. So uh, so I'm not from there technically, but yeah, it's Italian. Okay, gotcha. My buddy just did 23 and me and found out he had a, a half sister. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of wild the things that people find yeah. out. And like, I think my dad wanted to see if we were related to a rich group of Damianis uh, who own jewelry stores. In oh, America. yeah. But nothing like that popped up, though. So I've been leery ever since that uh, Golden State Killer thing. Where like this company will just give your DNA to the FBI? Oh yeah, they're they're not, they're not looking for a problem. I, don't you remember so many TV shows? It was always like we can't get the phone company to give the text records. Twenty Three yeah. Me is like open door. They're like we don't want any problems. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, you just you just got out of production. Can you talk about that? That is that able to be spoken about uh, at this a point? little bit i can't talk about uh, specifics of like what like but it was uh so two great clowns natalie palomitas and courtney peroso who are um friends and uh collaborators of mine we do a lot of shows together and have for years they set up a show uh through the duplass brothers okay um and we just shot six episodes of this show it's and it's i mean i've done some stuff before uh w with them and and other groups um, but I think this is the most clown show I've ever done in terms of just like the brashness of the silliness. Okay. Um, like we had done a show called Cake that's on FX where we were one of a, a group of um, ensembles creating content for it. Mm -hmm. And the stuff we did for with them like definitely was like rooted in clown and like, but it was almost, it was more artful and more about movement and simplicity where this was just about like just the dumbest. They wrote the dumbest <laughs> show. Like it still to this day, because it was a very stressful environment. We were doing up to 40 setups a day. Oh, wow. Um, they were, it was like a clown show because they had written this overly ambitious script and it was a pretty low budget affair in terms of manpower. I mean, the, obviously the cameras and the sound and we had a gorgeous uh, sound studio. 
but it was so ambitious and like you'd be so stressed out over like a vomit gag like like you know like <laughs> you really were removed from the absurdity of it and just worrying about like the technical ability mm-hmm. to execute in a way that um i had some conversations i've been only i'm only a week out from it so i'm still in like um ptsd a little but i i was uh talking to my manager and he hadn't talked to the girls i have the same manager as natalie and as i started to tell these stories i was just like oh this is absurd like this is hilarious that we were so like we got in a fight over like this dumb thing about how to make piano keys to put in your mouth like a looney tunes like we got into a, like a screaming match um but you know i i came out of it like i mean it was it was it was a great experience like yeah and like sometimes i think in entertainment that is one of the hard things that you have to reconcile is the times that are the hardest or the most grueling or you feel the most self-doubt end up being the most important things you do. Sure. And also things that, you know, with a little time to salve the wounds, <laughs> you look back and go, wasn't that amazing? That was oh yeah. Um, but I mean, it's a pressure cooker. Like you yeah. are, there's deadlines, there's other people's influence. And then, I mean, in a lot of scenarios too, especially when it comes to the television production, Artists are put in positions to be in charge of things they don't know anything about. I was prop master, <laughs> art director. By the way, every job I say, I've never done. Um, set dresser, head of special effects. I was overseeing set construction, but there was a guy named Ryan Marcico who's a, actually a really good improviser in his own right. And he, like that it was just like me overseeing was like, Ryan, do you know how to do that? Do you know how to, <laughs> do you know how to hang a door? And uh, another guy, Max Baumgarten, came in and helped with that. But yeah, I was in charge of all these things while I was also choreographing clown bits. So it would be this moment where I'd come on stage and be like, "You're, you're, you don't, you're not. There's no fixed point. You know, you're too." Like I'd say something like very teachery, and I'd feel like high status. And then a second later, I'd be on my hands and knees scrubbing black bile made of corn syrup off a white sound psych. <laughs> like it was a very like this. The, the uh, shifts in status were epic. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like I was, and and you know, um, right now, I mean, you, I, as podcast listeners, you can't see this. My apartment is destroyed because I I really wanted to clean it after this because I just wanted to have this like time. And um, you know, like from this experience, like I've always loved costumes and stuff, you know, as a clown. But like I really wanted to keep making because I created a lot of the um, effects and a lot of the art. So. There's just all these random for like a man who's going to be 50 next year, all these very embarrassing random art projects that are like half done around the apartment, <laughs> like you're, a child's, like a child's bedroom. You were, you were telling me when I got here about the bear trap for your penis. Yes. That you- <laughs> that's a, that was started last night. I worked till midnight on the bear trap that would look like it was uh, clamped onto my penis. And uh, today I went and was asking questions about fishing line because I, Realized I might be, not be able to hold it the whole time because I plan to be buck naked with this thing, <laughs> and uh, they, invariably, and this happens a lot. Uh, you do a lot of sketch stuff. I'm sure it happens to you. You have a, a very kind salesperson who's like, "Well, what do you need it for?" Like, because you, <laughs> like, they're like, they because you're just like, I need like it's not 20 pounds, but the object is kind of obtuse, and it would be kind of hanging around my. And they're like, "What is this?" And then. I was like in that moment, I just I was just like I'm just gonna tell this. Oh dude. yeah, and uh, I was like, it's kind of like a bear trap that would like ha- like I could sneakily hang around my waist like a bear trap like that's clamped onto my penis and just <laughs> uh, just like you know everyone's in masks so you have no idea yep. what the reaction is and he's like I think you need thirty pounds like he just kind of answered <laughs> you know I was like who knows he's still talking about it. Um, Oh, that's so, but you know what? That's got to be a little bit easier here in Los Angeles than it was when I was in Indianapolis. Can't, <laughs> I can't imagine <laughs> Indianapolis. Uh, yeah, here there's, there is, I would say this here, there is a quiet resignation. Like <laughs> I wouldn't say they're eager to help, but they're like, oh, okay. It's one of these. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A small, a smaller like comedy market. Like, yeah, you're definitely like, no, we're doing, we're selling out shows. Like, you yeah, understand. Yeah, this, is this is not just my house. This is not just my house. <laughs> we have a theater. We sell tickets. People enjoy our performances. <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you a lot about clown stuff 
in this conversation here in a few minutes because I've been reporting back to people in the Midwest while I've been here about stuff that's going on. And I keep telling them about this, this clown and idiot movement out here. But the people that are outside of like traditional theater don't fucking get what I'm talking about at all. So I've been pointing them to your other show, though, the two pink doors. That's one example I've been telling people to look at. I'm like, yeah, you'll under you'll, you'll get it. Like, you know, it's like, physical right. comedy like you, you'll understand why that's called clown when you watch it with that in the back of your head but i want to ask you first i i'm excited when i do these interviews when i get to talk to people who are like multi-hyphenates because that always really interests me and you told me when i met you that you started as a professional wrestling announcer oh yeah yeah um back in uh 1997 I uh, started working freelance for World Championship Wrestling, which no longer exists. They were based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Smyrna, Georgia, technically, if you want to, which is <laughs> not Atlanta, but it's close enough. They were, the funny story with them is when I first started there, they were still at CNN, the CNN Towers in Atlanta and had been like unceremoniously booted to what probably was a carpet warehouse in Smyrna, Georgia. Because <laughs> they were just like, oh, we don't want to be associated with... Uh, but yeah, I had uh, I had worked down at Turner on another project like this failed. Um, it was a website that was supposed to become a network. Like we were going to develop all the shows online, and then those and they only hired people under thirty. And as you can imagine, it went just disastrous. <laughs> um, but I had met a bunch of people from WCW, and I was a I'm a lifelong fan of pro wrestling. Okay. still a fan. Um, and uh, so yeah, I was eager to kind of keep those relationships and like through a series of insane events i ended up having to fill in for gene okerlund who was like one of the most famous announcers oh, yeah. of all time uh, i had to fill in for him one night and from that performance uh and i say that with air quotes because <laughs> i didn't know what i was doing and i was just very sardonic and young mm -hmm. uh they thought like that's what we need that's what's cool is this guy is making fun of the show and i ended up working for them for five years or so i guess it's about four and a half because i was um, fired in 2001 along with the entire company when it was liquidated by Vince McMahon. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And well, you know, it all ties together because whether I knew it or not at that point, that was like my first intense education in clown work. For sure. I, I see the parallels and I think anybody who's had involvement with both would see the parallels for sure. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, even starting clown classes years later, I didn't necessarily understand. And there was just a moment where it clicked where I was like, oh, my God, I've been doing this. I've been treating nonsense like it was important. I've been, you know, playing physically. You know, I've been watching these people tell stories in their underwear and convince people <laughs> it's, a, you know, it's 300, you know, like like yeah. just two guys in a ring like pretend fighting and then the entire crowd is completely rat like that's the power of clown is it is something stupid but our commitment to it translates in your brain in the subconscious of your brain as if this is something of merit of value oh yeah and then of course the second you it's over you then realize again it is not <laughs> um not in any not in any form or shape is it valuable um but and that's the joy of it because it's like oh we have the power to sort of all enjoy this dumb thing together and give it uh, gravitas in the moment and then walk away and be free of it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, but yeah, those were crazy years. And it's funny. Like I was, um, when I left there, I was ready to be done. Be the last year in WCW or I'd say year and a half, even the product was pretty bad and the environment was pretty toxic. Um, but over the years I've been pulled back over and over again in weird way. Like I spent two and a half years co-hosting a podcast with a professional wrestler named Raven. Oh yeah. yeah. And I went by a pseudonym um, because he wanted me to have a pseudonym. Cause he thought if he was Raven, like I should also have a weird <laughs> name, I guess we're still buddies. So I always go, why, why can I have been Chad? Um, and then, and through that time was when this uh, new promotion, AEW was just, yeah, yeah. Form. so I got to go, to that first event, the first oh, all yeah. out, and uh, I, know, I know some people that were very excited and went to that. Yeah. Oh man, it was like it was amazing. Um, we did like a live podcast there, and I mean, they expected like 500 people, and I think like 
3,000 people showed up to this hotel. It was packed with fans who yeah. were desperate for an alternative. And and then the show that night was very magical. Like, just, it was like, I was like, oh, this was what it was like when I loved being a part of the industry. Um, but doing that podcast, because it was, it, Raven didn't want to talk about wrestling at all. Because he's, <laughs> oh, he, he only wanted to do bits. So, like. Oh, what? No, that's not why anybody's uh, going to listen to I, Raven's I, I, podcast. <laughs> I was like, they want to hear you talk about wrestling. And he's yeah, like, but I, he goes, I don't watch. He goes, I was like, don't have a podcast then. Like, do something else. But uh, he's still doing that podcast, by the way, and it's still doing well um, with some new hosts. And and then, like, you know, like I said, with the clown stuff, you know, sort of bringing that influence into the LA scene mm-hmm. and and the pomp and sort of the entrances and the costumes and like people like failure's always been a, like a foundational element of clown. But the idea of losing, you know, mm-hmm. like the idea of like being defeated and the audience being able to boo or cheer you. Yeah. Like, you know, like that was stuff I feel like uh, I'm not the only person certainly who does it. But mm-hmm. like, I think I'm associated with it in terms of like, oh, his thing is, you know, he gets he's the dragon that gets slain at the end, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but yeah, like I started there and then I had a whole other career for many years uh I, don't, I guess i'm still in that industry but i was like a working screenwriter okay for years like a decade uh and th- that crosses over with the clown stuff but yeah like i had a uh, written a screenplay with uh with my partner then partner uh, this guy jp lavin we got on the blacklist in 2007 we worked with like Brian Singer and oh, uh, cool, you know, like uh, Zemeckis and uh, Brett Ratner and like all the we worked on big properties like Flat Stanley, like that went on for years. I sold four development deal pilots to networks. You know, that was just how I made a living. Um, and sort of in the tail end of that time, I had uh, really gotten into clown. I was doing improv just to kind of get out of the house because you know writers, Jesus, <laughs> like we are just <laughs> trolls. Um, but then had sort of, um, I had my, you know, my partner actually, um, my partner of almost 10 years passed away and it was like a really traumatic, uh, incident in this period of my life. And when that happened and I went back to comedy to kind of be like, oh, well, let me do this stuff that like traditional, like just getting on stage and doing like a living room opening. And like, it just wasn't doing anything for me. Right. It's like, oh, okay. Like, this is just like going to trivia. It's like a party game. And that's not to, I don't want to like, um speak ill for people who love it but for me i was looking to feel something more profound sure and uh and that's when you know i kind of stumbled into clown and uh and just immediately got it partly because of all the wrestling stuff and like i was like oh this is like this is about connecting with this audience this is what we do is meaningless it's about your dumbest ideas like and uh and then really just had a decade of you know just completely submerging myself in it. And for the first few years of it, I was still working with uh, my writing partner. And then there just came a point where like, I wasn't happy with the projects we were getting and we weren't getting as many of those as we needed. (laughs) So it was like that double whammy of like, no one really wants you, but the few people who do want to have you write garbage. So the exit was mutual. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. It was like a breakup where I was, I'd been ghosted for a year, and I'm like, I think we should see other people. Um, and uh, and and I, and around 2019, I was like, I'm because at this point I had been balancing everything. Like you know, I was kind of performing at the Lyric Hyperion, which was like a very big venue for Clown, and um, I had turned down a couple offers to like be in Vegas shows as a clown because I'm like, Oh, I have this other job. Mm-hmm. And then 2019 was where like, I'm just going to do this. Like, and it was super terrifying. Like I said, I'm going to be 50 in May of next year. And like, I started over so many times already, Yeah, you know, like, and starting over, it's always so hard. And like this time I felt like I was starting over in a world where I had the least idea of how I would make a living, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Cause it's like, like, and so, but yeah, 2019, you know, I started, uh, working for Spiegel world, which is a, the largest a circus company in America. I, I think probably, um, Cirque du Soleil still holds, I mean, I don't know where they are with their bankruptcy, but they're the biggest in the world, but we're the biggest in America. And, uh, we, 
they run a bunch of great shows out of Vegas. They run Atomic Saloon and Absinthe and Opium. And they're all these sort of body, intimate, intense uh, variety clown shows. Yeah. And we started making Two Pink Door stuff. And, you know, we made, we did a couple sh- shoots with that. And I started traveling and teaching. And, you know, then the pandemic happened. And, uh, like, literally everything <laughs> went away for, yep. like, so many people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was longer here than in other places in the country. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm only really coming to terms with that now of, like, how much longer it was here. <laughs> <laughs> and, by the way, like, I'm not anti being longer (laughs) Uh, well it's a lot more people it's there's you know yeah it makes sense it's just it's still weird for me because i keep hearing every not every show but many shows the performers still make comments about hey this is the first time we've all been out and around people and i'm thinking oh man i've been still do i was only off for like three months right well you know it's so funny because you know you're you're working with the yard and i've been doing a, a Great venue. I've been doing a bunch of shows there. And I just did a show there maybe last week where at least three of the performers had not been on stage for two years. Yeah. Like really good performers. Yep. Um, and due to that, by the way, there was a lot of yelling. <laughs> That's <laughs> There was a lot of yelling in this show. <laughs> That's true. There was a lot of yelling. Oh, boy. The first 45 minutes of this show. It was also in a really long show. Oh, my God. The first 45 minutes was like a third of the show. A third of the show, and it was all <laughs> yelling. And I mean, I just laugh at that stuff. But like, for and, and I think this audience, too, it's just so funny. Um, one of the things I think as like being a contemporary clown, so people don't know quite what to expect from you, is you're always trying to balance like, what show should I be giving an audience that isn't ultra familiar with what we're doing? Sure. Because back in the days of the Lyric, which is no longer open, you had a very educated clown audience. Mm-hmm. You could go in there and really mess with these folks. Yeah. And they loved it. But like, I had a feeling that night, which had a lot of clown, and maybe you disagree, there was just a lot of people who had never seen anything like this before. And it was a marathon. Like It was like, this is a tough way to start. <laughs> this is a tough introduction. To this work it's so long and, yeah uh, the guy who ran it, it's a sweetheart of a, of a guy and i think he just wanted to book all the people he loved he was excited Such yeah a nice he just guy. Went, he'll learn he'll he'll have a smaller show next time yeah yeah, yeah. I, I got bumped up i was like because i was supposed to be later and i got i was on at the two hour mark and i was moved up in yeah. the lineup um but uh but yeah like that part of clown work too is like we are in that stage of educating an audience mm-hmm. um, because we are not doing this traditional white faced, you know, we're not all stuffed in a car desperately driving in to put out an imaginary fire or whatever. <laughs> um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that. There's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I actually, if someone said, do you want to see a bunch of people stuffed in a car? And they, dr- I'd be like, I'm there. So like um, it, it is interesting though, because we are in this state of, of kind of, transition where there is a a uber traditional element and people who do this work who see it totally differently than this other group and we're all under the same umbrella of clown sure and that's i think what is challenging to somebody who isn't familiar because i've come into this now unfamiliar uh and it's neat for me because you know 11 years ago when i moved to indianapolis and i started working at the white rabbit cabaret I didn't know anything about burlesque and they did a, a lot of burlesque and they still do. And it, you know, over time, like now I feel like I'm a goddamn expert after watching so many shows, sure. but it was nothing I even cared about before or anything. And then I ended up performing in it and doing all kinds of stuff once I understood it. And that's kind of how I'm looking at clown right now. Like I'm trying to absorb and understand because there is a lot of nuance to it. And I think to the layman, like, you know, like you're saying, we were thinking clowns in the car and like the circus stuff. Uh, but would you like, do you consider, or is it largely, is like, is Charlie Chaplin a clown? Is Buster Keaton a clown? You know, it's, I do consider them clowns. Like mm-hmm. I consider Jerry Lewis a clown. I consider um, Peter Sellers a clown. You know? Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers. Marx Brothers is a mix. Like, 
you know, um, certainly um, Harpo's a clown. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, but yeah, like, but also like, it, it's this is all hard for me too because I think Melissa McCarthy is a clown. She certainly doesn't identify as a clown. Sure. You know, I mean, I just watched Step Brothers with my, I, I introduced my girlfriend to the movie Step Brothers, which is <laughs> one of my favorite comedies. It's I, a funny movie. It's just such a fun movie. But like, you know, John C. Riley and Will Ferrell are, that's clown work. They're playing idiots. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like, they're low status, but because they're so reckless and dumb, they are super high status. Mm-hmm. They're, they're completely in charge of that house. And like, so, but at the same time, it's like, you know, I don't want to try to like impose owner, like they're whatever they want to be. Sure. You know, like, but I do see so much work. I mean, my God, TikTok is all clowns. You know, it's all these like physical moments and these sort of like look directly addressing the viewer, mm-hmm. looking right through the camera. You know, like so much of it is clown work. I know there aren't people like they're just saying this is dumb and fun and playful. Yeah. And and I'm like, well, yeah. And that's what we're, I guess we don't have some proprietary um, ownership of dumb, fun and playful. You know, to your point, though, if you do invest in it and you do think about it, there is so much nuance and so much you can learn about maximizing your result if you want to be dumb, fun and playful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like there's so many ways to sort of gently coerce and manipulate an audience that they're unaware of that gives you such a different reaction and and makes them so much more in love with you as a performer and also willing to let you get away with murder up there. And I do want sort of people to kind of, if they want to be in this space, I want them to understand that ultimately your relationship with this audience is to bring them pleasure Mm-hmm. And to you know have them walk away feeling that, that that was an experience that they wanted to have and want to have again. And I think without that training, I see a lot of this work where it's like, yeah, you were dumb and maybe a little reckless, but I honestly think that audience had a terrible time and it wasn't for them. It was all for you. Yeah. You know, that I think that's a, a big thing in comedy, this argument of. I have always come from the standpoint that I think that the audience is king. I, I like, why are you even performing? I mean, we can get into like art where it's like, oh no, it's you presenting your art and whether they appreciate it or not is for them to decide whatever. But you're talking about people paying to come watch you do something. hundred percent. And so I put a lot of stock. I'm going to, I'm always going to do what I want to do, but I'm going to do it like what I want to do together with you. Yeah. Because there's no other reason for me to be up there doing something selfish. Like, I love Andy Kaufman. And some of what he did is just extremely selfish and wasn't for the audience. But it's for me as the audience later. Yeah, that's where... <laughs> and again, I think that's where the confusion is. Is like, Andy Kaufman wasn't playing for the entire audience. Like, there was, there was a group of people that he was annoying to the pleasure of another group of yeah. people. Um, I think it's one of the most interesting things. I do a lot. I'd like to do more. I, I do a lot of uh, traditional. I love bringing dumb bits to traditional stand-up clubs. Yeah. Love it. And I, I'd say I've had modest success. Like I've, I've played a bunch of places. I play regularly. Like I'm not like going to the comedy store and doing it there, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I would like to do more of it. Um, but what fascinates me about the general design of a comedy club is there are two types of stand-ups, which is, there's like the stand-up that comes in and by the end of the show, they're your best friend. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're speaking your language. They're like, whatever that means, they could be talking about the dirtiest, filthiest stuff in the world, but they're your best friend. And then there's this other whole section where like, it's, it's almost like a fraternity in the sense of like, you're being hazed for the whole show. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like it, you don't get it. Yeah, like it's it's almost like if you're cool, you will walk out of this show no matter what you felt. You're gonna walk out of the show approving of what I'm doing, because if you don't, then you're this sensitive snowflake mm-hmm. liberal. Like you you don't get comedy. 
and you want to you want to shut me up and you you don't believe in freedom of like it's so uh it's such an attack it's adversarial it's, it's so adversarial yeah. and like i'd say like one of the guys i think who's very good at it and i also like i'm i think i think anthony jesselneck is an example of a guy who does it but in this way where i feel like he's calling it out he he's operating on a multi-layered approach yeah it's fascinating to me and like and it's like he's testing the audience, but like he's doing it so overtly. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it isn't overt. A lot of it is like a guy on stage, almost always a guy, let's be honest, <laughs> and just eventually talking for 30 minutes about the jokes he can't tell, all of which he has told. And like this audience is like, you better like these jokes because someone's trying to stop me from telling these jokes. Mm-hmm. It's like, who's trying to? Exactly. Them? Yeah. You just told them. And, 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 and it's like, it's almost. <laughs> And and I do feel like the I'm so a fan of comedy that pushes buttons and limits and is dangerous and like dumb and like most everything I do has some element of like this is going to be a tough sell everybody mm-hmm. <laughs> this is going to be a tough sell but like I don't sit there and keep reminding the audience that if they don't like it somehow they have failed as comedy fans yeah you know like and and to me it's such a brain like such a gaslight. Um, and, uh, and by the way, that doesn't mean I have a problem with it. I don't I'm, I'm, in some ways as like an old wrestling carny, I'm mm-hmm. like, good for you guys. Yeah. You, you figured this out. You're tricking this audience into having to like your material or they're going to get pigeonholed as this group of uncool. Mm-hmm. And so like there's the carny in me is like, this is pretty smart. Yeah. <laughs> they, they definitely they pulled one over for yeah, sure. I was like, good for you. You know, the one, uh, mindset that i do adhere to that's like a little adversarial to the audience is that i've never done traditional improv but i buy and read all the manuals that the schools put out Mm. because i think there's always stuff to glean from that and one of the things i really liked was in the truth uh, truth and comedy is that just that idea of playing to the 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 top of your intelligence i do believe it's the audience's job to get the joke and that it's not your job to make sure they get the joke. Yeah. And that's just, I want smart people to watch me. I, I don't want to, you know, like dummies can fuck off. I don't really, you know, that, that's not what, what is it, your, what is your definition of a dummy? Uh, just being obtuse, just not understanding what's being presented right. to them. Yeah. And you can not like it as long as you understood what it was, <laughs> but if you didn't yeah. understand it, then that to me that's no excuse like ignorance is no excuse you know like and i that's the reason i've always had a huge problem with comedy clubs stand-up comedy clubs because they're designed that you're supposed to entertain that dummy who paid money and getting his chicken wings with a side of comedy (laughs) and that has that mentality really bothers me that i believe in the thing that if the comic says something and you don't get it, everyone's supposed to laugh at you because you're not smart enough to understand what's going on around you. Right. Yeah. Like I think, boy, it is, it is tough when you have like a pro audience mentality, but you also are really good at identifying an audience member. who sucks. <laughs> um, which is like a lot of like what we do. I'll say this to that point of top of your intelligence I, in the spirit of it, agree, but I always say top of your ability. Like, sure. Like, and the only difference being that, like, I think sometimes the point is it's kind of gets obfuscated in, in this way that it's like you then have a bunch of, like, I, I was involved with UCB for years. I actually think a lot of the stuff they teach is very smart. I actually would recommend certain clowns go there because I felt like they didn't really have a grasp on sort of growing an idea that they needed to be able to identify the funny thing. And they thought just that they had funny teeth in their mouth and were like on a segue, which by the way, as I say that I would watch that everybody, can we edit this out? That's the best bit ever. But, uh, but I'd be like, you need to understand like what you are trying to grow. Mm -hmm. Um, but, 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 but what happened would happen at UCB a lot is you'd have a bunch of improvisers who were just flexing knowledge. Like it would just be, you know, hey, this is a deep cut on like people who were involved in the revisionist era of the Civil War. And I was yeah. like, I don't give a shit. So for me, 
who traffics solely in bear traps on his dick. (laughs) (laughs) What I try to do is I am going to be so committed to this. There'll be no winking. There'll be no detachment. I'm Mm -hmm. going to emotionally present this character who is asking for help because his dick got caught in a bear trap with as much integrity as, as possible. Like, because like, to me, when it, like, because there's also there's intellectual intelligence, there's physical intelligence, there's emotional intelligence. I think probably most often what I deal with as a teacher, because teaching's like another way that's like so uh, fundamental when you're in like in a fringe industry like mine. Mm-hmm. Where like I have to teach, right? Like, I have to teach to sort of pay for this apartment, and mm-hmm. I like it too. But people listening going, oh shit. <laughs> I didn't know it was like taking out the garbage. Uh, I really enjoy it. But like, it's also like, this is, is I find very rarely aren't people smart enough to do clown work. <laughs> like, <laughs> as I say it out loud, it's like the dumbest thing I've said, but very often they aren't emotionally prepared Yeah, to sort of accept being laughed at. Or mm-hmm. moments where the audience enjoys their genuine failure. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I, I would argue some of the stuff you've seen at the yard coming out here and some stuff I'm seeing around town, when you see that moment, whether it be a stand-up or a clown, who really turns on the audience um, in a moment where you're like, well, how is this going to help? It's mm-hmm. like that is a straight emotional intelligence issue. Like, yeah. It's about like, oh, you, you're like you're so easily wounded and mm-hmm. you're so desperate to be validated. Like that, that comes from like a deep seated insecurity. Like, um, I know, you know, there's a show that we're just coming back to called clown zoo. We did it all through the pandemic and, uh, essentially about two, three months into the pandemic, my clown friends and I, the ones that I did two pink doors with and a couple others, we were like, oh, we won't, how are we not going to perform? And so we decided to do a theatrical mask show at Griffith park. We'd all met there for someone's birthday. Um, I wanted to do a show at, at the old zoo um, because they have these great enclosures. So the old zoo. It's, it's in insane Lo- that exists and that you can just walk around in it. It's amazing. It's, <laughs> for those of you not from Los Angeles, it's this area where there used to be a zoo. Uh, and now it's like all the tiger enclosures and stuff. And you can just walk around and there's yeah, cages. I was crawling all inside of it. It's like- crazy. <laughs> well, I wouldn't suggest that. They are full of urine. That's one of the things. <laughs> Very, very full of urine. So am I. It's fine. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, so we kind of bought neutral masks and 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 um, we were just going to kind of rehearse and stuff. And we figured, oh, we can wear surgical masks under these masks, and who cares? Like mm-hmm. this actually doesn't feel like a, like a devalued product. Um, yeah. And you know, we started doing these shows and like and uh, and 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 you know, like immediately we realized to this point I was making. And and I have to give credit to my 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 uh, my clown daughter Natalie Palomides, who's like amazing. And she early on was like, "We're not honoring Matt. We're not doing mask work in a way that like we're not honoring it. We're just like kind of taking the piss out of it." Okay. And we were still getting because these are all seasoned performers. We know how, and people were desperate for it also. I mean, we were getting fifty people to come Wednesdays at noon to yeah. show. Like people just had nowhere to go. Um, and she pushed, and like I was like, "She's right." And so we had like this person come down and we started coming early and training. It's like, if you're going to do dumb stuff where you're all in masks and you're doing like a uh, interpretive dance on what it means to dress a hot dog with mustard and relish, <laughs> you better know the mat. Like you better commit to this, like the emotional weight that this is important, you know? And, uh, and yeah. And like, so we all had to kind of put our ego as all people who had been like, you know, performing and considered good or teaching we were like we are not good at this like Mm -hmm. we have to put our egos aside and we have to we have to get good at this and um and i feel like that that is something that sometimes people come to like this alternative side of comedy and like they have not they don't like stand-up or they haven't been successful at stand-up and they don't understand the amount of like equity you need to put into being dumb yeah for sure the the structured form of things is always interesting to me because I'm somebody who is completely self-taught. And at this point, 20 years in, like 
I'm not proud of it, but I like I have a real resistance to any kind of classes or training. I've taught classes, yeah, and and I watch classes and I see the value. But for myself personally, like it, I mean, it's just it's a humbling thing. Like you're saying, it's like just having to admit that you don't know how to do things and and go and learn from somebody who does. That sounds very simple and logical. But when you're a stubborn fuck, it's like nah, getting nah. older too. You know, <laughs> I uh. I actually had a couple suits of mine offer classes and I kind of, I tried to take one and they were like, please don't take this class. Uh, like, don't take my class. I'm like, no, I'm trying to just be open because yeah. maybe you see the world and that didn't work out. Um, I will say to that point, like coming, coming into like, obviously when I do solo bits, I, I would be pretty low status. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a bit where I'm in a bomb vest and like, or I'm a dumb security guard, but like, in terms of ensemble play, I had kind of been cast as like the high status, you know, I'm yeah. like, like I said, I'm older, I'm bald. I've got a gray beard. I'm also like 210, like I'm a big broad guy. Like, yeah, I just, i have a, an air of authority. And one of the things when we started doing clown zoo also is at one point, Natalie decided she wanted to be like this director in character called Mrs. Skin. And, I was noticing that people were still treating her like, like, so Natalie is like this little monster. She had a special on Netflix called Nate. Mm-hmm. And like, as a performer, she is a powerhouse, but she's also like one of the most loving, caring, sweet. And so everyone was kind of like being a little dismissive of her character. But I knew that like, oh, this character only works if we're scared of this character. Right, right. And so I had made a decision very early on that I was going to be like, basically the butt of all her jokes and i was going to and i talked to her about it i was like you need to destroy me every week like i'd come out and do my big dance moves and lift people up over my head and then she would just like you're a piece of shit like she would be like you suck and like would sometimes like rip my shirt off or kick me and it was actually like there was a part of me that was like don't treat me like that (laughs) even though i was the architect of this idea um but like i was to your point it was like this is my class. This is my lesson. Like I need to, I need to embrace the idea that there is value in being devalued mm-hmm. and, and, and sort of rising her stock at the expense of mine. Like my pro wrestler kicked in. It's like this mm-hmm. person needs to be put over. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to get over in the process because this audience is going to become more and more sympathetic to me. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then eventually what had happened was after months and months and months of this, um, she was busy with uh, some other projects and I created my own director called father bone, who was like this, I use like Santa makeup and I wear like this, I actually wear, um, a Rasta beanie as a beret. I was like, am I allowed to do this? Um, I mean, it's just a beret. Like I don't wear it as like, but like there was a point they're like, is that a Rasta beanie? I'm like, it's a beret. It's just, I have a big head. I, I, um, but I came in and then I was like, now they're ready to have me be the, and then, her and I feuded like wrestling. Yeah. And, uh, and then I, there was a point where I just completely demolished her, but like, it was like, Oh, right. Like you can't forget that big picture and you can't like put your ego uh, up front and be like, this is how this audience must receive me mm-hmm. because there's probably in the area you're afraid of is probably the area that they will most connect to you. Yeah. You know? And so like, I mean, I had such a, you know, I had a great pandemic. I had a terrible pandemic like everyone else. Um, but <laughs> mine was actually pretty solid. I'm not lying. I, I, I got to reevaluate life and I got to slow down and yeah. I got to really invest some time in some things I've been neglecting. And it's actually, it was pretty good for me. And, and I would say for me as a performer, I feel like I had gotten to a point, at least in the very tiny uh, ecosystem of, LA clowns mm-hmm. where I was like, he's one of the best clowns, like kind of in this little scene, like, yeah. you know, your little, your little sure. fiefdom. And it was like, I was learning. So like, I, it was an education from beginning to end. I, I did a show with, um, um, Natalie was involved in it, but, uh, two other great clowns, Dean Evans, who I think has done stuff at the yard yeah, yeah, and Jed Eveleth, uh, who's a great clown and actually taught me in my earliest days, you know, even though she's younger than me. And we did, a traditional, more traditional clown show with mask, surgical mask on. So it wasn't like the theatrical masks. And boy, early on, it became clear that I was like, my wattage is too low. Mm-hmm. My wattage is way too low. And so for six months in a noisy Alhambra park 
people would gather and like this was very different than clown zoo in the sense that like dogs would attack us and <laughs> uh, kids would just crash on their bikes or someone would be just playing guitar and we had to work to get them to sort of watch us and like we had to earn it every week and like we would, yeah. we would dress in costumes and you know and, and and every cheap trick you can imagine and it was like so enriching so you know to have the all the technical stuff of clown zoo on learning to move and you know stick your point stick your points and like really like emote and like play low status and then this other show where it's like you have to claw your way through this show and like a lot of times failing in a way i had not failed right um i remember there was i will say this though and this is maybe one of the best things about clown work we had a show and at this point the show had built to like 50 or, again 50 or 60 people like a real like we were like during the pandemic it was such a gift and i um, I invited um, I Yoshihara, who's a friend of mine, to do stand up, and uh, she had, her whole set was she just started dating this um, guy, and he was black, and she did her whole set about an Asian woman dating a black guy, and <laughs> really funny. And then I was told to do an impression of her at some point during the show, and I did basically her whole act about talking about me dating a black guy, and the audience hated it. <laughs> She was loving it. Yeah, yeah. You know, her boyfriend loved it. And this is not, I, I say that as almost like the audience. I'm like, the audience had every right to hate this. <laughs> yeah. let, me, let me be clear. Again, as long as they understand what they're yeah, seeing they and they dislike it, it's fine. <laughs> they, under, they understood. And, and I was having this experience where I was looking back at I and, and her boyfriend and they were like laughing and this audience was scow like all scowling eyes. <laughs> and I ruined the show. I ruined this show. <laughs> and I got to tell you, I left there and I immediately forgot. And Jet, who's a very sweet person, texted me the next day and goes, hey, do you want to talk about what happened last night? And I was just like, what happened? Question mark, exclamation. Like, thinking <laughs> something happened after that. <laughs> thinking something else happened. And she's like, about the whole thing where the audience, like, basically hated you. <laughs> And I was like, I totally forgot that happened. And she goes, we talked about it at the apartment for two hours. <laughs> I had literally got in the car and I was just like, what am I going to eat? And had just like, yeah, because I felt so much over a decade. Yeah. I mean, I've just eaten shit so many ways. Every way you can prepare shit, I've eaten it. <laughs> then I just was like, oh, I guess that was a flop. <laughs> so I will say like, if you stay in it long enough, there is a tolerance to like absolute humiliation that you can't even imagine that you will sort of just embody. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe even find to be your fondest moments, you know? Sure. Uh, but also I will say this in that moment, there was no moment where I thought I needed to inform this audience that like you guys look behind you. These guys think it's funny. Yeah. Like, I was like, no, you don't like it. And you have every right to not Did, like this. Were you being unfunny? I was just, or was I, it just what you were doing? I think what I was doing. They were not. You ever have to understand. Going to like it. This was right during BLM. Yeah, and it was like bad it, for me. Like it was a, it was my failure. A hundred. I can't stress mm -hmm. enough. Like at the time we were doing it, and that to be this white guy up there, sure, making these jokes, it was completely insensitive to where we were as, as a culture. You know, and it was like, this was my friend and I'd met this guy and he was super cool. And I was like, well, if I'm supposed to do I, I'm going to do her act. I'm going to do every yeah. joke I can remember. And I didn't like use an offensive accent because I is a, is a na na national, um, she's a Japanese national. Okay. Or, but just me talking about, oh, it's so weird dating this black guy. Like it just, it was poorly timed and poorly People were just through. like, no, you're punching down and I'm not, I don't you're, care you're, what you say I don't now. care what you say. You're punching down and, and yep. this is not what I came here for. Yep. And Those are hard lessons though. Those yeah. are really hard ones because I, I got really stubborn about a lot of things over the years where I'm like, no, that is the right joke. Right. I was telling you before we were recording about my old man character, Harvey, when I first developed it, I did all of these jokes about how fat my wife was. Mm audiences fucking hated it. hated it and i dug my heels and was like no that's the exact joke this person would be telling right and one of my friends at one point goes so what is your goal then with your act are you 
just trying to be as authentic as possible to what end? Or are you trying to do an entertaining show that people right. like? And so eventually all I did was start changing my jokes instead of how I don't want to fuck my wife. It's that she wouldn't fuck me. Yeah. And the exact same joke then is just as corny and then but started getting laughs and I had to be like, okay, fuck me. You know, like, right. They, they, you're in a position of power up there. And it's like, they're like, we just don't want to be around this dude. Yeah. Just like, stop you're doing what a great you're job. doing. <laughs> it's we believe you. Another but, thing yeah. I learned, though, is in stand up is just to if I had certain ideas to just identify one of my friends who the joke would work better for and just give it to them. Be like, hey, I got this. Oh. If you like this, it's not fully written yet, but I had this joke about this. Like I gave my buddy Zane, who's Pakistani. I, I was like something along the lines of you don't like your white friends meeting your Pakistani friends because then they they find out that all of your weird personality quirks that you've been blaming on your ethnicity. Right. And he's like, Oh, and then he took it and I don't know if he's still doing it, but he was able to make it work. Sure. The amount of legwork I would have had to have done to tell that joke. It. I don't, and it wouldn't have worked anyway. I, uh, I have several bits where I tell bad jokes, mm -hmm. but I'm always like, it's a, they're clown bits because it's always like either a person who is not qualified to tell the jokes or a person who doesn't want to tell the jokes. Uh, and I've had multiple, the two most popular iterations are I have a bomb vest on, I'm yep. being forced, and a security guard who's found an open Micers notebook in mm -hmm. the bathroom where this, they have flushed paper towels down the toilet. And yeah. he wants to know who did it. And these jokes are all kind of like gross or dumb or like a little offensive. Um, and they're like street joke style. Yeah. They're they're like one-liners. Like, one-liners yeah. or just simple punchlines. And, uh, and so, and again, like, whoever this imaginary person is who wrote the jokes is more just like an idiot. Like they are not racist jokes. Right. Or like, but I did have, so I had, a, I, I had success with this joke, a couple jokes about pedophiles. Oh yeah. So one of, <laughs> and but, I know one of the, and I told it to people after yeah. I, I like three different people I talked to. I repeated this joke. Is it, to is it the, is it the, uh, what is a pedophile's favorite salad dressing? No, the one I was uh, the, when you did the, uh, the knock, knock orange, yeah, no, orange people, and banana. People love that joke. <laughs> and that's like one of my closers, but I, but like, but I found that like, part of what we do is accepting when like it's like it might not it might be a well-constructed joke but it's mean or it's mm -hmm. like or it's in the wrong spirit so so i had written this joke and i was so sure and um uh and the joke went if i can remember it the fact that the candy uh has all melted be, uh sitting in the glove compartment is the second worst part about being molested in a van <laughs> <laughs> right and i'm like yeah. oh that joke's got layer this yeah. joke never got a laugh yeah people hated this yep. joke but i have a joke where i'm like what's a pedophile's favorite salad dressing neverland ranch <laughs> that joke kills yeah um and it's like oh right because one there's distance mm -hmm. and the other i'm like i am asking you the audience to imagine a scenario where like I am like literally drawing you a narrative picture of a child being molested. Of yeah, that's that's my that's my bad. That is not you're like listen. You don't see the construct like how funny this joke starts here mm -hmm. and by the end. And so like there have been a bunch of lessons like that mm -hmm. with jokes. Um, we did a character for many years on this variety show that I did, where my brother just played a pedophile like his yeah. name was ned creeperman and he came out he looked the part and he was a creep we had a little boy puppet that was on the show and he come up and be like is reggie here <laughs> and like it was so creepy and like and some people expressed that they didn't uh, didn't like it and uh andy the the owner of the white rabbit and who was in the show with me the quote i always repeat is one time he goes you know you can only have so much child molestation in a show before it's not funny it's true <laughs> It's got to be just a dash. <laughs> but then the final time we used the character, we had him come out and he gave this speech to the audience about how he was the last protected like group in society that gets judged by the way they look, the creep. And it was this whole thing about how like I'm not I'm there's nothing wrong with me. This is what I look like. I just am into these things. And it like made the audience feel bad for judging him. <laughs> Sympathetic model. And like and that I loved. That was a clever way to use the character. Then you're taking them on a ride. 
Yeah, thing. where it was just like, oh yeah, we do. We all looked at this guy. We all know what he is when he comes out, and he's like, no. But the line I always used is Harvey's. I go, we wouldn't have a pedophile on the show. He's a he's a child enthusiast or whatever you Michael Jackson apologists would call it. Right. <laughs> I mean, a little dash of that like shame on you guys is pretty fun. <laughs> I I had a character I tried. It did not work. I tried it three times, and <laughs> I was a character who would talk like this. And he would taste it. He goes, two things before I start. One, I only do smart jokes. So if you don't like smart humor, you should leave. Two, I am required by law to tell you that I am a registered sex offender. <laughs> and then I would start telling these jokes. And I just and then when the audience would laugh, I'd be like, I guess some people aren't here for smart jokes. <laughs> right? Like, like that seems like it would work. Does not work. Do you ever see that they did it at least a couple of times on Saturday Night Live? The Will Forte character, oh, which one? The sex offender. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, for Halloween. Yeah, <laughs> but also, yes, I am. Sex yeah, that, that, that's like, yeah, that's a great. <laughs> Will Forte is like the king of unlikable characters. Yeah, he's really great at being creeps and weirdos, <laughs> and he just has no interest in being a character you would have affinity for. <laughs> Yeah, he's good at also creating like vocal qualities for those characters, uh -huh. like like a like almost a music to them that makes you feel worse. <laughs> yeah. But also, like I look at a, you know just not to uh, circle it back, it's like with SNL in general, you know Sarah Squirm or Sarah Sherman mm -hmm. now, like I would consider her absolute hundred percent clown. Yeah, like, that's all the shows she was doing, all the shows I was doing, you know, like this and that, and like she dresses like a clown. Yeah, like she <laughs> really embraces it. This great gross stuff also comes from a place of total joy, mm -hmm. you know, like they're celebrating all this grossness and stuff like that. But like I'll, so often I'll see people, um, uh, what was her, uh, Leslie, uh, what was the, um, cast member? Um, I don't know if it's her first name or Leslie Jones. Yeah. Yeah. That's clown. Like that type of like coming in and like, I'm the doctor. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's like, Oh, you're not the doctor. You're Leslie Jones. Yeah. That's so funny. You know? Um, I, I say often that like with character with clowns, it's like very much a Halloween situation where it's like a nine year old dresses a fireman. It's mm -hmm. like they're doing their best to be a fireman, but they're a nine year old. Like you never not see this nine year old. And like yeah. for me, I'm always trying to as much as I'm committed, I'm not like lost in the character. Yeah. Like, it's me doing this and I'm looking at you like I'm doing this. You know, and that's the relationship. The relationship is with me. Yeah. You know, so like, oh, Chad's doing this really dumb character. Audiences respond to that better, too. I, As someone who does the opposite, who disappears in characters, I can readily understand the audiences prefer to feel safe with the person. And even using SNL as the example, some of the most popular cast members of all time are more in the clown vein who are... It's the Will Ferrells and the the uh, Kate McKinnons and the Chris Farleys where it's always them. Yeah, yeah. Will Ferrell's a great sketch performer, but he's always just a variation of Will Ferrell in whatever costume he's wearing. I would argue, too, and I think I would argue Kristen Wiig falls into that category mm -hmm. where the character's so absurd. Mm -hmm. And you always see her kind of being like, can you believe this yeah. is what I'm doing? Like, like not, not from a lack of commitment, but there's always just that... Um, that clandoy, that little gleam mm -hmm. of like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing this. Yeah. Like that. And, but then, you know, you look at like, um, a Daryl Hammond who had a really yeah. great run on it. And like, mm -hmm. he was just like, and then I would say, um, oh, who was the guy who unfortunately was, uh, was murdered. Um, one of the great cast members of all time. He used to do caveman lawyer. Oh, Phil Hartman, Phil Hartman, my favorite I, cast member of all time. I think Phil Hartman is the perfect hybrid. I agree. Perf like, Excellent actor, mm -hmm. excellent actor, but it's Phil Hartman. Yep, and it's like, and it's like it's Phil Hartman. You're in good hands. Yep. you know, like, um, so yeah, I think there's room for all of it. You know, also sometimes to your point, like I like to. There's a well, you saw actually the first time I did this bit was at your show, but like I do try to walk that line when I play um, uh, Gregory Peck from To Kill a Mockingbird, mm -hmm. like. I do want to be, I want to be like an Oscar worthy actor in that. Yeah. But I also want them to kind of know, like, I know this accent is atrocious. Like, yeah. So like, there's a character where I'm like, I want there to be moments early on where they're like, Oh, he's just really committed. Mm -hmm. And then slowly, but surely kind of show more of the clown. 
in yeah. it. So like, I think there's like room for all of us to kind of take both mindsets and, and marry them together in different ways. It should always be a hybrid. Yeah. Because, I mean, th- unless you're in an environment where, you know, the idea is a strict adherence to one sort of thing, I think that, that's what I really like about the, the stand-up acts that you were talking about that you do. Because something you do that's very smart that I, I wish I would have developed a little bit more is that if you're on a show that's more stand-ups, people still feel comfortable because you're still delivering and that style they understand. Yeah. You've just got a different dressing to it when you come in because too often I've been on those shows in those spots and I do something that just has such a different rhythm that the audience doesn't know the other night that three hour long show there was one straight stand-up comic on the show and he had to have felt that same way in that environment and if I remember he kind of pushed back a little bit yeah he he had a a bit of an abrasive personality it might have just been as a personality who knows i always wonder that like if like i always like i'm like i can't wait to see that comic again because i'm like did they just have a bad night or he came late yeah he felt out of place he left early and he also just like if i had to guess he's a young guy he seemed way too cool and comfortable and i'm guessing that means he was very uncomfortable oh sure so he was like doing his best to like exude confidence and probably just came off a little abrasive. And also you're talking about different energy. I mean, you know, stand up comics versus like booking shows like that is, yeah, is, is like, and, and and like we said to the, uh, the showrunner who's a really nice guy. It's like great learning experience to be like, how do you book a show? Like, how do you book acts that are so different together and mm-hmm. make it like, I think uh, Zach Zucker in Stamptown, mm-hmm. he's really good at it. Like he's really good at figuring out the rhythm. Yeah. And he also plays, uh, uh, a character in the show that does both. And yeah. Like, and so he, he's, he's got the math down, but it is, t- it's difficult. And I've certainly followed the wrong comic number of like, for instance, even not to go back to the Dick in the um, <laughs> bear trap. Ultimately, like right now I plan to play in a completely clown version of this. Mm-hmm. My goal is to tell jokes with that thing. Absolutely. That's, that's the way I, that's one of those where it's yeah. like, can we, can we ignore? Okay. Guys, yeah, I don't want to talk about what happened. <laughs> So what's in the news? <laughs> yeah. Can we just ignore uh, what, what's going on down here? Yeah. Like, it's a good story. What happened? It's a good story. But I just got three minutes. So uh. Uh, so I, I am going to have to go pick up my daughter. And so I'm going to have to wrap this up, although I'm very much enjoying the conversation. My my last question is, uh, is do you foresee like a, a 5.0 version or whatever you'd be on now of your career coming up or are you happy where you are? What do you, what do you see in the immediate future for what you're doing? That's a great question. And I thought about it a bit when I was walking uh, my dog today because I was like, Oh right, this is about, and you know, like I, to be completely like honest and vulnerable. I don't know. I like, I feel so grateful like I, I have classes and people want to take them. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to go up at shows that other clowns aren't allowed to go up at. Mm-hmm. You know, I get to work on, albeit low budget, really exciting, really exciting like TV projects and this and that. Um, and you know, I have this relationship with Spiegel World where, and these, to me, these are the best shows in Vegas. You know, these mm-hmm. are the most fun there. And at the same time, it's like there's a hand to mouth element. I'm lucky. I had a bunch of periods in my life where I was very prosperous, but I'm like, if I didn't have those periods, like right now I'm, I'm certainly like you want to be financially compensated mm-hmm. in a way, but then you also, as you get older, realize that there is a price you pay for doing exactly what you want. Absolutely. And like that, there is a price. And it's not to say that like sometimes the magical confluence of this is what I love and people want to pay me a lot of money doesn't take place. And, um, but yeah, like as I've sort of even been cleaning this place out and realizing how much of myself I put into this and how much I do love it. There is a part of me that's like, God, I wish there was more of a sense of security mm-hmm. and permanence. Um, having said that I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing. Right. I'm going to keep getting excited about building props for shows that are, that are free, but are the exact shows I want to be on. And we're going to let me be exactly what I want. Mm-hmm. I'm still going to, you know, like grind and go out and teach. And I'm going to say yes to things I shouldn't. And like, I am not going to change my path one bit other than 
maybe just trying to make sure that I am building written content, which I have been doing. Yeah. Like, like that was, I think, something that came from when the p- pandemic started. I was really just traveling, teaching, and performing. Mm-hmm. And now I'm back to sort of putting some content together that I could star in. And like, I feel like the more TV credits I get, the more that's a viable option. But, but yeah, like, I think I just have to become comfortable with the discomfort. Yeah. And, you know, as you get older, and I guess about a decade older than you, mm-hmm. it becomes harder and harder to navigate that. Yeah. And I've got kids too. You got two So kids. it's like, yeah. it, it's a constantly terrifying yeah. thing. But I, what I always try to look at is that if you're not happy with like what you're doing, then nobody around you can be either. So I always try to remind myself that that's important too. Yeah. Because I could... I could work a shitty job and still be broke when I need to retire. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> so. <laughs> by the way, that that's what I um, I and I'll end on this. I used to have this friend on Facebook. I say used to because now it's like once in a while. I'm not racist, but that's like every Facebook. Yeah. Listen, I'm the last uh-huh. person. I'm like I feel something very racist is about to happen. Yeah. But I can remember for years, he was uh, working in the bar business and stuff like that, and he would just like kind of like say to us, and he'd be like, you know what? I'm just think I'm gonna just grab that desk job and get my cool hundred K. I'm like, no, those people had to kick, beat their asses. Like, yeah, like, it's not like the switch, like no one's off. No one's like, Hey, we want you to come in and write ad. You're so funny. Go write ad copy for us. It's gonna be the most boring yeah. ad copy in the world. And we're going to pay you 200,000. No one. No. Like, like I almost feel like as artists, we have to box ourselves in. Like we have to commit so hard to what we're doing that eventually the possibility of all that stuff becomes harder and harder so that we can just feel more comfortable with the difficult choices that we've made yep. <laughs> to yep. the chagrin of our loved ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like it's not e- like, I-, I think like I have no misconception on my friends who are successful have put in the equity of work and time right. to get there. And I don't want to do that either. Like, no. I-, I don't want to, cause I don't want to do that stuff. And, and so, yeah, like this is the life that I'm going to live and, and, you know, fingers crossed that, you know, it, it puts me on a path that maybe my audience expands or my opportunities expand. But if I stay right here doing this, I'm going to be relatively happy most of the time. I think that's a pretty good deal. I think so, too. Uh, yeah, I got to split. I got to get my kid. I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me. Yeah, this was fun, Isaac. Uh, super fun. Um, yeah, take care. Say hi- uh, happy Halloween. <laughs> I just want people to think we taped this months ago. <laughs> Thanks. See you, buddy.